So it's seven metres out. Australia needs to try to win the game. Cobain takes the line out. Australia trying to drive ahead. Gregan again. And Larkham. Kefu. go again another episode of the running rugby podcast you've got archie leo and toby coming to you the second last game of the year and only one more to go boys and we had argentina and new zealand on the weekend and there was some high hopes but they didn't come to fruition they couldn't replicate what they did two weeks ago and a similar scoreline to what we saw uh with the wallabies a 38 point loss 38 points to nil up at newcastle the Pumas couldn't get on the board here. And I mean, this is what we expected at the start of this competition. This is what we thought the Pumas would come in a bit undercooked. And maybe it's just three weeks in a row being out on the park. They looked a bit tired, boys. Yeah, it's a big ask. There was a, there was a lot on their shoulders. They, they got really revved up and pumped up for that big win. Then they drew with us, which was another pretty successful result for them. It doesn't surprise me that they fatigued a bit and, and could bring it together uh, for this third match. It, it Just a huge number of errors, just dropped ball and inaccurate passing and it just became uh, a turnover story and the All Blacks capitalised on all the possession. And that's two weeks in a row that they've really suffered in terms of the stats of possession and territory. I mean, this one, at 70% possession to the Kiwis and 80% of territory um, a little bit higher than the week before against Australia but they just couldn't get on the board and now they've gone through three games and they've scored one try yeah and I think that's always been the issue for them actually playing consistently scoring points consistently we know that they've got a great kicker they can rack up the penalties but when you have to score over say 20 or 30 points to beat the All Blacks that's difficult and the defence can only do so much. I mean, I think we've seen a bit of a slide in their performances, and as we'll talk about some of the controversies that have come out this week, might make it increasingly difficult for them to to get up for their next game against the Wallabies. I mean, it could really bring them together, but I think it's been a tough campaign for them, and it probably, in some ways, they surpassed our expectations coming into this Tri-Nations competition. They were really undercooked. They had a great win against the All Blacks. But we probably thought coming into this that they wouldn't get a win on the board whatsoever. Mm. So they've they've definitely done well. Before we get into all the controversy around the Argentinians, New Zealand obviously played their last game of 2020 now. Um, Nightmare is over. They'll, They'll be home for Christmas. The boys will be back as they wanted. If you had to give the All Blacks a bit of a grade... Uh, for the Tri-Nations, the Bledisloe, the, this cup round, and even Ian Foster coming in and taking hold of this new team. Do you think they've, what, have they met their expectations? Have they still fallen short, even though they are likely to win the Tri-Nations with that um, bonus point victory on the weekend? I think they're a little bit short of expectations if you give them the same kind of zero start for the, the start of a, a four-year cycle new coach a bit of turnover in players that you give most other teams. Like, certainly we didn't expect 
too much out of the Wallabies. We we definitely set our sights on on a more uh, balanced set of results, given that we were going to see lots of turnover, senior players out of the team. The All Blacks had a few more carry on, but you you just don't know what kind of philosophy the the new coaching group has tried to bring in, and they've they've kind of it seems like they've probably underestimated their opposition, gotten a shake up, and continued to improve from there. So they haven't really gotten worse after that initial shake up. So they drew with us. They they then went on to beat us and then beat us convincingly, and we we got them back in Australia. But it was kind of you know what was it what was it for in the end? And then Argentina they got a bit of a shock. Argentina would have had heaps of time to strategize for that game. They just played an amazing game. So few errors. The All Blacks couldn't quite grasp them at the end. And then you know they've done their homework. They've come back and said no no we're not gonna. We're not going to lose to this team again. We're not even going to let it be close. They've dominated them. So, um, you know, they've definitely bounced back. I think they get a, a reasonable grade from me at least. They're, they're, if you're going to have shakes at some point betting in a new group, this is the time to have it. So hopefully for them, I guess they'll be expecting they just getting them out of the way early. Yeah, and I think Foster really had the public against him somewhat from the beginning. So he could have easily gone pear-shaped more if if they'd lost another game during this campaign, but two you know back to back losses was bad enough for the lofty standards of the New Zealand public who are used to winning every game. Really hard to meet those expectations head on year after year, um, and there's going to be there's going to be a little bit of growing pains I think with this team. Next year will be interesting. Hopefully, more normal competition, more time to prepare for this coaching. Um, staff and look Foster's still going to be under pressure if there's another loss early on next year but I think he's done enough obviously to fulfill the second year of his contract go through that and then I think they'll probably assess things towards the end of next year as to what they do heading into the World Cup but all in all I mean they've they've won the Tri-Nations they've retained the Bledisloe Cup they've won that obviously and what else can you really want as a as a New Zealand fan I mean at some period of time, it has to come to an end. It has to kind of level out a little bit. And maybe that's what we're going to see over the next four years. Yeah, if your measure of a season is coming away with all the trophies, well, they're going to do that. And if you've learnt your lessons through that process and, and you know developed some new combinations and you know suffered some losses but ultimately still came out on top, like, it depends how you, how you measure success, but I think that's still fairly successful even though the path wasn't littered with huge glorious victories just to be clear they haven't won the tri-nations yet you no, they haven't you guys are obviously ruling out the chance of a hundred point victory to the to the 101 points 101 is what we need and look to actually get ahead look the wallabies have done it before they've they've scored over 100 points exactly once before and yeah maybe it was against namibia but it you don't know. Um, in terms Depends of the, if more of the Argentinians get ruled out somehow, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> don't think so. Um, in terms of the All Blacks, are there any names that you think have popped up that have made their debuts this year, or players that have reaffirmed of how talented they are um, that you're, you're now going to be looking forward to see, seeing if they can come back and have a stronger season, you know, in Super Rugby and make make claim to a position in that all black 15 
I fear the day when Will Jordan is a regular feature. Not just because I think he's bloody skillful, but he just seems to have all the luck in the world. Um, I think we only saw him once, but Cullen Grace looked pretty strong. Mm. Um, very young player of the Crusaders. He'll he'll definitely feature soon. Um, and actually, uh, touching on, I think it was last week, Toby, I think you were probably the most down on someone like Artie Severe as, in combination with some of the other guys in the back row. Watching that game on the weekend, how anyone will leave Artie Severe out of a back row in the next three, four years, if they do, it's because he's injured because he brings something that I have not seen any other player bring, just ridiculous barnstorming runs, breaks first tackle every time. Like No one else runs like Artie Severe runs, and it just gives you those extra opportunities for offloads and, mm. and bending the line. It, it, there's just no comparison. Like maybe like when Taniella has his best runs, that's that's what you're getting. You're getting people falling off the tackle. But he's just so destructive. Uh, he can play six. He can play eight. If you have to play him at seven, he gets turnovers. I I think you lose nothing, including him, in any of those three positions. Yeah, Leo. I think I take your point on Artie Sevilla. I think he had a great performance on the weekend, and I I think it's very hard to drop him given he is so consistent. I was worried about the balance of the back row. And, and as I talked about, I think, last week, the struggles that we had sometimes playing Hooper and Pocock or Phil War and George Smith or even more recently playing Hooper and Samu. I think you fall into a, a similar trap. But, you know, if they, they have a, a six option for the All Blacks that is strong at line-out time, bigger body, doing a lot of the grunt work there, then perhaps you get away with having Severe that carries like a traditional number eight without perhaps quite the size of, of that traditional number eight. Um, if he plays to this level, I don't think you can drop him. I don't think they'll change that combination. I think Sam Kane's done really well at seven. He's your captain. So that's probably two out of three positions taken in that back row for the next little while at least. And then it's really just settling on a number six. You've got a lot of people out there saying Akira Yuani deserves that jersey. Frizzell, some people saying he's good, other people saying he's overrated. Could you put Satutu there? I mean, there's a lot of options that you could look at. Liam Squire, I think, is coming back. Yeah. So there's there's multiple options at six. It's just they're going to need some time together with those other back row counterparts to actually properly form those combinations. Um, but, yeah, I think Sevilla, so there's Jordan is still my number one prospect going forward i think caleb clark had his little run there of, of great form i think he needs to show that on a consistent basis and i think given his size he's going to have those big carries but as an overall package skill wise i think um will jordan has the potential to surpass him and probably nab one of those positions in the back line i i guess you don't play him in the center he's going to have to be in that back three which is crowded as we know but Will Jordan, if he displays that kind of form going forward for the Crusaders, it's going to be hard to leave him out next year. I think he's that kind of elite-level prospect. So he's probably the most exciting guy I see coming through who's surpassed someone like Braden Enor, who the year before I think we were big on. Um, who could come back into the All Blacks setup, perhaps? Either way, I think Jordan is definitely someone I'd keep an eye out for. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you think about... I don't, it's going back to a few of those Crusaders, really, but people like 
George Bridge obviously was the starting winger, um, injured himself and was ruled out for the season, which allowed Clark to come in. Sevo Reese hasn't really got a run this year, but those are two smaller built guys that could easily push for positions um, coming through to next year as well. Look, it seems that Foster at least has set on the Moanga um, Barrett 10 15 experiment and looks like he's solidified what he thinks is his 12 option at Jack Goodhue as well. Um, it'll be more of a question of what, what they do in the front row and in the probably the second row is probably where they're looking at uh, the thinnest of anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Um, did you guys see the article um, which quoted Bowden Barrett this week? Just b- back on your comment about the ten fifteen, he he made the point that it's definitely easier starting yeah. at ten and moving to fifteen, as opposed to starting at fifteen and later in the game coming closer to control. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. Like I I don't see. I mean, maybe, maybe that's a little like power play thing. Like you should start me at ten, I'll play fifteen later. But I don't see that happening. Um, but it was an interesting point just in isolation that that to, to start at 10 where you know the game plan, you've been on the front line seeing how the, the defensive line's coming up hard around the ruck um, to then move to fullback and support the next guy as opposed to coming in feeling like you're coming from a distance you haven't seen as much and then having to pick up the slack and having not, having not experienced it, I don't know uh, exactly how, how to judge it, but... It, it sort of made sense, and mm. um, that I, I think they're probably better set. If Bowden's going to start at fifteen, I, I can't think of another team that moves their fifteen to ten late in the game. Like you play your ten, you play your fifteen, well, and you and you hope they don't get injured, and you play your support around them. If he wants to play ten, then he's got to play a full Super Rugby season and outplay Moanga, and then he'll get his first choice position. He'll he'll be at ten, and he won't have that issue. But if he continues to get outplayed at 10 and don't expect to have the flexibility or the to have your preferences taken into account and and you kind of prioritized over Moanga because it's not going to happen especially when he's off to Japan next year on his sabbatical season during Super Rugby um, which I think is sort of what this article was looking at and say asking where he wanted to play when he's off next yep. year but it means there's no way that he's going to walk back into the All Blacks and get his first preference um if Moanga stays anywhere near the level of what he's been performing at this year, really. Yeah, and there is some argument that Bowden has had his peak in his career and he's he's approaching 30 now or he's definitely kind of maybe peaked around the, the mid-2010s and and this could be his little slide in form maybe that, that continues on and Moanga is hitting his peak now. I just think Moanga is the better option at 10. And I think he has been for the last two years. Mm. And maybe Bowden's kind of resting on the laurels of his early success. And he is taking a lot of time off Super Rugby. He's moving around. He's now been forced out of position. He's taking the money where he can, which you can't blame him for. But it's it's very unsettled, I think, for him at the moment. He is kind of moving to the Blues, I think, maybe has kind of contributed to that as well. But now he's going to be in Japan. He'll be back at the Blues. There's very limited domestic game time for him, which I think may hurt him in the long run. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting once we get to 2023. Like, is he even in that starting 15? That'll be an interesting thing to be looking at over the next three years. Definitely. Um, 
I mentioned the front rows before, and we had a card in this game, Tyrell Lomax, um, which we've sort of highlighted as someone that probably wouldn't be there if some of the injured players weren't, or suspended players were still there. Um, got yellow carded late in this game for dropping his shoulder into one of the Puma's heads. Um, I just wanted your guys' take, comparing that to uh, all the red cards we've had this year. Where did you think that lined up? Do you think that was an adequate decision? No, nothing was picked up on the field. The TMO brought it back to look at this. Do you think that should have been a yellow, should have been a red? There was a lot of comments on social media saying that that's just as bad, should have been red card immediately. I would have thought it should have been a red, given it was direct contact with the head, um, unmitigated. We yeah. saw that with Kepu three years ago in Scotland. He cleaned out shoulder charge almost to the guy's head, got sent off on the spot. So yeah. I was expecting a red if they're being consistent. I don't like to see red cards, but, yeah, I just think it probably fits with the the kind of decisions the referees have been making. So I was surprised it was a yellow. Yeah, they seem to allow, like, a little bit more room for, call it error, in the rucks because it's, like, low and, you know, difficult to move a player who's part of this mass of people. But, I mean, it doesn't excuse that... you. The, the strike to the head and the whole point no matter how it comes is that there's there's significant risk of long-term health effects to players who receive a lot of blows to the head and it, it needs to really be dealt with accordingly if a guy if a guy is laying on the ruck in a way that's kind of impinging your ability to get on the ball you know sealing it off in the same way they already sort of referee that then Fair enough, but there's there's sort of a point where you know the ball's lost. I actually don't remember hearing saying the ref say you know you know that ball's lost. Like basically, you have no chance of getting this now. Everything else you're doing is just hassling players who are sort of defenseless in the ruck. Just just give it up. Like that was I think a positive when the ball was at the at the feet and you're just like we just want the game to keep going. We don't want yeah, any of this other dirty out. nonsense. Okay. Yeah, clear, like clear it, and it obviously encourages the attacking team to get on with it. But telling the defensive team it's lost, like you have no hope. So from this point, you diving at the ruck is potentially a penalty. Like that's probably a positive they could be a bit more um, sort of earlier to call to to try and avoid situations like this because you just have no hope of dislodging a player in that position no matter what you do. I'm saying going to the Argentinian side, and obviously this game was sort of bookmarked by the death of Maradona. Uh, absolutely massive name in world football but obviously in Argentina most of all and we saw it even from the start the All Blacks making quite a big gesture in in laying a Maradona number 10 jersey out for the Argentinians before performing their haka um, on the night which I was surprised I didn't actually see that coming and then after the game uproar from the Argentinian fans saying that their team hadn't honoured Maradona enough and the the story goes and I don't know if this has been absolutely corroborated but um, whether this sparked fans going back and looking through social media and finding tweets and other statements made by players almost a decade ago from the likes of Pablo Matera and Guido Petty and other members of the squad um, which had xenophobic and racist sort of comments and 
then we had at the start of this week these players being stood down and Pablo Matera being stripped of the captaincy. Yeah, just probably things we won't go into directly in terms of the content of what was said, but, you know, easy to say that that's inappropriate and particularly in the public forum, that's something that's going to get you into trouble. And obviously no one picked this up um, for a number of years now. I'm, I'm not sure how it went so under the radar with, with a guy that's as famous as Pablo Matera is around the world. But obviously someone's intentionally gone out there and, and got some dirt on him. And as you say, Arch, the story is that it was a disgruntled football fan that thought that Maradona wasn't actually being honoured in the correct fashion. I mean, what do you want the team to actually do to to be honouring a, a football player that's obviously a god in, in that country, but it's a completely different sport. They're not in Argentina. And, you know, obviously they they would have been affected by this, but I'm just not sure what the, the public back in Argentina would expect the, the Pumas to actually do to, to honour him more clearly or more evidently. I just... It's a strange situation. Um, I thought the All Blacks, that was a nice touch by them. Apparently, it's TJ Perinara's idea. Came up with that just before the game and, and pulled it off, which was nice. But, look, it's a it's a sad day that I'm sure everyone went through mixed emotions with. And I'm sure that the Pumas were upset by it. But, yeah, I think it's unfair to expect them to, to really come out and do much more than they did to, to honour his memory. Yeah, I agree. There's... Like there's only so much you can do that in, in the time they had to recognise a, a a player and in like in the game like you in a game of rugby how do you how do you show like respect in the act of playing the game aside from just playing passionately for your country which the Pumas have a a strong history of doing and before the game like the All Blacks gesture was really nice that's something you can expect from an opponent you know to a national side. What what were the Argentinians going to lay out their own Maradona jersey at the All Blacks? Like that doesn't make any sense. You could put some sort of uh, iron on patch on the on the Argentinian jerseys instead of just black taping up. But you could equally misconstrue that as um, you know as disrespectful if it starts coming off during the game. Like you didn't do a quality job. Like it's just so it's it's bizarre that you know statements from the players. And a black armband it w- wasn't enough when you know derailing their preparation and focus and and um, just intent on this game about beating their opponent in their competition needed to be kind of diluted with a whole Maradona um, remembrance thing. It's just it's just weird. I I can't see many other countries um, copying the same. Like, can you imagine an American? Um, golfer being pilloried if Michael Jordan passed away and they didn't do more than wear a black armband. Like, it's just, you know, people get passionate, yeah. but there's a there's a limit, you know. I think it speaks to maybe a divide between the fans of rugby and football in Argentina and and what that is specific, specifically, I'm not sure, but someone's intentionally found this out about him and, and maybe it comes with the success that the rugby team the Argentinian rugby team has seen in the the past few weeks and maybe people don't really want to see that. They prefer football to be in the spotlight and rugby's maybe taking a bit of a stranglehold on people's attention back home. Who knows what it exactly is, but 
you know, I think it's unreasonable. Obviously, what was said by those players back in the day, you know, we can't condone that. But, yeah, it, it seems at all a very strange time to come out like that and particularly following the success of the Pumas beating the All Blacks. They've had quite the run this last three or four weeks and who would have thought that it would end up like this? And now, Arch, as you'll probably state, we've just found out some more news. That's right. So, obviously... These players came out and showing uh, quite a lot of regret and apologising profusely for it. And they've been backed up by current teammates, former captains with Augustine Creevy, the former um, hooker that was captain when uh, Maradona came into their dressing room during the 2015 Rugby World Cup. And there's some iconic photos there, as well as Pichot, the um, former scrum half, saying how good a players these guys are, how good they are for the culture and how positive they are and how these um, statements don't reflect them as players. And today we've, we've heard that, uh, that the re- decision has been reversed. He's been reinstated as the Argentinian captain, but those three players identified haven't been named for this weekend's game versus the Wallabies and won't be named. So they will be without a couple of significant players uh, to take on the Wallabies for the final Tri Nations game of 2020. Yeah, they've they've <laughs> handicapped themselves now. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the right way to deal with this is. I don't know that there's a perfect approach, but I, I'm glad that the players have been uh, able to at least, um, you know, make a statement and be, you know, received with support from their, you know, their peers, their teammates, their. Um, you know their their former teammates like for for comments from such a long time ago. The argument may be well if they said it then what's to say they don't still believe it now. But ten years is a long time, and looking at the age and the context, and and the more recent context like particularly Matera like held up in that first game. They get a win against the All Blacks. He's making statements to the ref about playing for his country and respect, and like the guy's clearly dedicated to his craft. Um, to to strip all that away on something that's that's quite um, you know aged, um, yeah. It's it's unfortunate that it came out um, when it did, and and now they're they're gonna they've suffered you know the the breakup in their in their preparation, and now even though these guys are gonna be allowed to play, they can't play because they're not part of the prep, they're not part of the game plan, so. Unfortunate to put a sour note on the end of what's been a really good campaign for them. Absolutely. So let's look at this game in a bit more detail. So we've got the team list out. Um, obviously, fourth game in a row for the Argentinians. More or less a similar team to what we've seen, a bit of an amalgamation of the last two weeks, obviously with a quite a few changes in that last weekend's game. So De La Fuente is captaining the team at 12 with um, Orlando coming back in with a bit more of a similar centre pairing uh, that we've seen at the Haguaras. Sanchez still there. Escura at nine. Uh, Kubeli still not fit for this game, which I think is hurting them quite a lot. And probably the other difference we see is uh, Marcus Kremer being named in the second row, uh, joined by um, Alemano, and then the back row of Issa, Brunei, um, and Gondrano as well there. So, a lot of names that we've seen, but these guys must be feeling a little bit exhausted after a few weeks, and they're coming up against 
a Wallabies team that's had their week off and they've got probably the biggest name getting back is James O'Connor back there at number 10 with Reese Hodge pushing back to fullback. Yeah, so I just on, on Argentina, like forced fresh legs, maybe that'll help. Maybe maybe forcing those same guys who've had such a big role in the first three games, now they're, they're bringing in some fresher guys, that, that could help, but definitely not as strong a lineup on paper. For the Wallabies to bring back James O'Connor, I think that says that, you know, Rennie believes that O'Connor is a long-term 10, um, that, that there wasn't so much... Uh, uncertainty in his eyes like Hodge came in and did a serviceable job but he obviously sees Hodge better used in a different position interestingly at fullback where we we'd previously said that we think he he plays his best football at fullback um, he's you know pretty solid defensively the kicking boot gets a gets a good play um, and you've got the the x factor around him so he's not sort of being relied upon to do anything um, too game breaking uh, but yeah, O'Connor's obviously a, a strong contender there for long-term ten spot. Back in with Nick White, that's that's a good combination. We get to see hopefully a lot of Reds combinations between O'Connor, Patea, and Paisami. Like those guys have played a lot of rugby together this year. Um, it's, it'll be interesting to see that streamline now because I don't think we've actually I'm not sure we've had that not as a starting lineup anyway. With Tamur and, and O'Connor going out in the same game, it's. It'll be a new combination, but a, a good um, of continuity from the Reds. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I've really liked Rennie's continuity of selection, mm-hmm. I think, for the Wallabies in this game and across the series, really. And it would have been easy for him to throw in some new guys and, and mix things up a bit for the last game, given the margin involved here with actually winning the Tri-Nations and a disrupted Argentinian outfit. But to actually treat it, this game like it's it's very important. It's a it's a sacred fixture. Obviously, every Wallabies fixture is very important, and I think we want to win every every game well. So it's good to see those combinations being built upon. Um, I think still with Paisami and Patea, there's a lot to work with there, and it hasn't quite hit its hit its peak yet. I think we've we're still building into that. Obviously, Nick White is a, a veteran with O'Connor. I think that really helps having those two there in the halves. And then Hodgie, like we've talked about, that's, um, I think, a great step for him. And not one person has nailed down that fullback position this campaign. I think Tom Banks has come close at times, but he hasn't quite hit his straps to the level he does for the Brumbies. So if Hodge can come in and perform well, as he's done in most games that he's played this year, you may see him there for you know in a longer term capacity, but yeah, it looks a good team on paper. I think next year there'll be some some gaps in our depth with guys like Philip and Simmons going overseas. I think Hannigan's going away for a period as well, so that's three of our starting forward pack at least that won't be around in 2021. Yeah, it's going to be a definitely a transitional year as well next year. I think we're still aiming for that four year plan into the 2023 World Cup and. Rennie is playing the long game in some respects, but he's blooded a, a lot of young players this year, and I think he's done a good job at kind of keeping the balance with youth versus experience. So we haven't been, you know, out of our depth in games, and I've been happy with the way he's coached, and I think we could finish on a real high here with a, a strong win against Argentina. Absolutely, and I think you look at how many games we have before the World Cup in France and I think it's only 
in the 30s, I think it's like 32 or 34 sort of tests that they predict that the Wallabies will have. So it's still not a huge amount of time to get sort of these these games together, get these combinations going. So I don't think that... I think Reading's made the right choice in terms of you've got to still look to build these, these um, combinations and you can't just throw some caps to um, other teams thinking this is a throwaway game or anything like that. Toby, Taniella, um, you thought he got taken off too early in the game versus Argentina a week ago, and now he's dropped to the bench. So flip-flopping a bit with Alan Alatoa still. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think, which do you think is, is the best way to do this? I think it's still yet to be determined, to be honest. And it is difficult when you can use Daniela as an impact player, but we also want to see him for more than 20 or 30 minutes a game. I think he's earned that right. I've liked him starting. I think whether he was taken off at halftime, you know, in the last Pumas game, because, you know, tempers were flaring up a bit and Rennie was worried about a yellow card being handed out or it was just that he wasn't happy with the discipline Taniella was showing. I'm not sure which way that was actually falling for Rennie, but um, to the same token, I think we're yet to see the best of Alan Alatoa and maybe he wants to give him another op- opportunity to really put his hand up because I think he's been solid but not spectacular and Taniella really has that spectacular element to his game, particularly with ball in hand um, and defensively, to be honest. So I think it. I want to see more of Taniella. I'd prefer him to start so we get 60, 70 minutes out of him um, or at least 50 or 60 really solid minutes. But um, equally, I think Alatoa needs to step up. We need to build that depth at tight head to make sure if there's an injury that we've we've got those two guys that are at the highest level. Um, really happy to see Bell again on the bench at loose head. I think that's a good selection again because he's, he's a real long-term prospect, still very, very young but has all the physical attributes of a a guy who's going to be a long-term option for the Wallabies. So I think in the front row stocks, we're looking better than we have. I think hooker, the fact we're not continually rotating at hooker, I think is a good thing. I think BPA has done enough to keep that starting spot now. And we've kind of stuck with him, even though he's been a little bit erratic in some of his line out throwing in games. I think overall around the park, he's been great. So Hooker, I think, if you at least he can stay fit, um, Fyanga probably still needs to work on his game a bit, but those three guys are pretty solid. But yeah, it's still, there's, there's definitely issues at certain positions with depth in the Wallabies. Um, I think second row will just be such, a, such an interesting position to focus on next year, Arch. I think that's going to be a huge hole to, th- to fill with so many high-quality guys disappearing in the last two years. I mean, we've lost... Arnold, Rodder, Coleman, we're losing Simmons, we're losing Phillip for a period of time. That's five pretty high-class options that would have been our top five locks in the country the last couple of years, and, and now they just disappeared. So, yeah, that's going to be a big hole to fill, I think. So, obviously, these two teams met a week ago up in the Hunter, um, 15 all, no tries scored. This time, we're at least not in our bogey location. We're back down in Sydney. What do you think the keys are for the Wallabies to put some points on the board in this game? Is it as simple as having someone like James O'Connor there at 10? Or is there something more they need to look to do to try and 
um, put some points on against this really good defensive unit in Argentina. I think it's being creative in attack, mixing things up, really playing to the strengths of our kicking game, which I think we did early on in that in that first game against the Pumas, and then we went away from that in the second half, and we saw less success attacking-wise. The problem is, I think, we got frustrated with trying that tactic, and because we weren't actually getting any pay from the pressure we were putting on, we there, therefore went away from it. I think we should just keep focusing on that space behind that the Pumas line, defensive line, actually puts in place because they're actually getting a lot of guys in the front line, so there's space out the back. I think we need to capitalise on that. Whether it's from O'Connor, I think Paisami showed that he's got a good kicking game. Um, and then Patea's really got to just know, I think, when to pass, when to do a little kick, when to run it himself. He's still probably not quite at the peak of his decision-making. I think at times he makes a wrong option, wrong choice in attack. So that's something we've got to be careful of. But we've got all those attacking threats out wide. Tom Wright, we've seen what he can do. Marika, obviously, and... And Hodgie has a knack of scoring tries as well. So I think we're going to see a lot more pay for our attack, I think, in this. We've just got to be patient and use the space that we're given, really adapt to what the the Pumas are doing, because you just don't know. They might slightly change their game plan, um, given the lineup they have. Um, I'm sure they'll be strong defensively, but we just need to play what's in front of us and be adaptable. I think think we definitely need better balance. So the All Blacks showed the kicking in behind the line uh, was a, a strategy that the the Argentinians hadn't adjusted to after we did it to them. And so the All Blacks just came and did it to them over and over and over. And they made they made ground, which, which helped the forwards um, sort of secure territory through the set piece. So there's definitely room for some of that from Australia. I expect the Argentinians will be a little bit more wary. Um, but again, if, if they decide to hold the full back out of the line or, you know, deeper or hold the winger out, then there should be more space out wide. We need people to be looking for those things and, you know, not just the trainers on the side who are always calling that stuff out, but the players in the moment need to say, okay, this time is that winger up, is he back? Where's the space? Um, the forwards will still need to be precise at the breakdown. We need to really just secure our ball. I need a team committed a whole lot of people to most of the breakdowns most of the rucks uh, on the weekend, we need to be pretty precise and efficient so that we don't just get dragged in with three or four guys in every ruck uh, and losing that opportunity to to run a couple of different groups of forwards around. And you know, if you can if you can be securing a ruck, have two forward group options or you know two pairs of guys available running at their weaker defenders or their tired defenders or gaps and you can just keep rolling with a couple of options, that's just going to force their defense to make a lot more decisions. Whereas I feel like when we tie up a lot of forwards in in each ruck, there's really only you know one five-meter width piece of field that we're running our forwards at, and they just defend it, and that's it. So we need, we need to spread those options out a bit. And then once the defense starts breaking down, guys like Patea, like you said, need to make good decisions. So look up and see that there's space in behind. Communicate with the guys out wide say this is on, I'm, I'm going to put the kick through for you, not just put it through and chase yourself because the one-out stuff isn't going to do it. Yeah, and for me, I think one of the keys I want to see is, I want to see, like especially with this Argentinian lineup named, I want to see our scrum actually put just pressure on them throughout the whole 80 minutes, whether we have our starters or our reserves on. 
and actually use that as a bit of a weapon because I think it it can be and this is a a team that can put a huge amount of pressure and make defensive or attacking scrums um, turn them into advantage plays turn them into just um, forward momentum and absolutely change how we are attacking a backline that's moving backwards or it's panicking or it's turning and we don't have the loose forward sort of coming in off the back so early. So I think if they can look to do that early, I think that makes a really bold statement um, and will really help us get on the front foot, which like, like we keep saying, if they can put some early points on, they can get ahead and they can probably stay ahead uh, against a fatiguing Pumas team, I think. And that was our issue uh, during that last game that we drew. Boys, are we all feeling... I feel like we're all feeling a Wallabies victory here. Like the the second Wallabies victory. We've had two losses. We've had two draws. How about two victories? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a Wallabies victory. I think the, the Pumas have had a long tour. Uh, they've had some change. It's going to freshen some legs. But overall, I think there's going to be some fatigue there. And I actually, I'm a little bit concerned. Sanchez has looked really busted up. In, in the latter stages of each game in the last couple of weeks. I wonder if if they're not, you know, close, if they persevere with him or if they just protect him and pull him out because they're playing for pride. There's there's some guys on the bench they'll want to bring on. Like They haven't had Miotti um, come on at all in this series. I don't think we haven't seen him at any stage. No. And he's a quality player. And for certain, he could, he could come on and sub Sanchez at... 50 minutes if he's looking a bit flagging. Um, and, you know, he's dangerous, so we need to be careful of him. But overall, you know, we've got the continuity. We're rested. Got some some strong players coming back. If O'Connor can have a good game in combination with the with the centres and if the forwards can deliver a good platform, I think this should be a strong, a strong win for us. I, I would expect, I would like to expect maybe 15 points. I mean, the controversy that they've had to deal with this week is enough to derail the team, distract them, really put themselves at bay to the Wallabies. I think, you know... But, but I are think they going to come out and play for like Matera this week now? I'm sure they will. This is going to fire them up enough. again. Do you reckon he runs the water? <laughs> I don't think... I think he'll be on his way home if not there already because it's... Yeah, not maybe he wouldn't want to go home at this stage. Maybe he'll go to France or something, but... It's it's not a good situation and it's affecting three key players for them or three relatively big names and it's only just happened so it's a distraction that it's going to feed into their training um, and yeah losing Matera is, is enough of a, a hurdle to get over I think against the Wallabies where in the first game it was a draw but the Wallabies really were the better team I think on that day. I think we are the better team overall. This time, I think we'll get we'll get the points on the board. I think we'll get some ascendancy. I just can't see them pulling off another miracle victory. Um, it would be huge if they managed to do it and would really stick it to the Argentinian public who haven't been supporting them perhaps this week. Um, certain corners of those communities out there online that are hunting them down. And, yeah, it would really stick it to them in that respect. I just can't see it happening. Yeah, I'm of the same vein. I feel like the Wallabies are um, should be ready, surely, by now. Uh, 
to actually put put some points on the board. And we still haven't seen a point score sort of in the thirty points for the Wallabies. So they've they've scored in the teens a couple of times. They've put twenty four points on the All Blacks, um, and that's the highest they've gone so far. So. I'm looking for, I know it's probably not going to be the 101 point victory to win the Tri Nations, but a 30 point game, I feel like that's something I'd like to see out of Dave Rennie's Wallabies. Looking around the world, uh, other games going on. The Maori All Blacks are taking on the Moana Pacifica team that's got a couple of Islander internationals as well as Joshuani, an All Black international, as well as some of the um, other players from Super Rugby. That's in Hamilton on Saturday as a bit of an exhibition match. And the Autumn Nation Cup wraps up this weekend with their finals, uh, well, their version of the finals. So the relevant um, placings from each pool playing off against each other. So in 4th v 4th, you've got Georgia versus Fiji playing up in Murrayfield in Edinburgh. So unfamiliar territory for both those teams. And at the moment, it looks like Fiji's going to play. So their first game of the season is also going to be their last uh, in this Nations Cup, but still I think that would be a good game, two very different uh, teams playing off there. Third versus third, we have Wales versus Italy out there. Um, again, this is probably a team that Italy might fancy themselves again, though Wales did show a lot of heart versus England on the weekend, um, only going down 24 points to 13. Um and then in second v second, you have Ireland versus Scotland. Uh, Scotland obviously getting the bye versus Fiji last week, and Ireland taking down Georgia 23-10, to but probably the premier game for the weekend. England versus France, top of both divisions. France took down Italy 36-5, and as I said, England took down Wales um, last weekend. So I think that'll be definitely a game to see, and um, France definitely be looking to upset England in Twickenham. The French are uh, suffering a funny set of circumstances, are they not? That they've played their a certain group of players uh, as many times as they're allowed to play them, and so the squad they're going to run out is really a bit of a B squad because the the club owners won't actually release the the proper top line players for this game. Is is that not the case, Tobes? I actually am not across that, but I you know I know the influence that those top 14 clubs have on their players. So, yeah, that seems like that makes sense. And it's a real shame if if that's the case because this is a flagship game for rugby in the Northern Hemisphere and a French team that's been performing really well um, and probably the biggest threat to England realistically at the moment. So, yeah, it'd be a shame to see it become a bit one-sided if England get on top of France early. We've seen the form England's been in. Um, they could be really destructive there at Twickenham. So they're basically they're calling it a B team. Due to an agreement with the top 14 clubs, which states player can only appear in three of the five internationals this autumn. So those top 14 clubs are going to restrict their players from leaving too many times and affecting their results. So they're effectively marketing this French team as a B team um, because so many of the, the favoured starters aren't going to be available. Yeah, that's a massive blow. I didn't actually see that before, but it just shows you the power that some of these club teams have, in France especially, um, with stopping players play. And, I mean, this is obviously an issue just for the French team, but you see it so often, especially around World Cup years, and players 
especially the Pacific Islander players, um, getting threatened to lose their contracts because they're leaving to go play for their country, which it seems like something that, you know, the International Rugby Board should be stepping in and be like, look, we need to foster, like, these nations and international games um, being the highlight of premier sort of rugby around the world. These are what are going to draw more fans into rugby, not your top um, French club competition. Yeah, it, it it would be good to see the World Rugby Group come out and um, try and mandate that players should always be available for selection for the national side because... Like it'll just balance the economics of of selecting or or um, securing those players. The the guys who are so elite that clubs want them, regardless of the fact that they're going to lose a couple of different people at different times. Like it's just it's it's crazy to think that the the highest level of the sport in the internationals is compromised for the sake of their their top fourteen. And yeah, of course that's got a lot of money and support and, and backers. But at, at some point, the world rugby should be more interested in promoting the game as a whole and seeing countries compete at their strongest. <laughs> I think, yeah, it probably speaks to the, the influence that private ownership can have over these rugby competitions and something we've got to be wary of um, because they're protecting their interests of their own teams. You know, notorious owners like a Toulon, who will just basically be very vindictive in terms of allowing players to have the freedom to, to choose what they want to do. Um, it's it's very different, obviously, in the Southern Hemisphere, and that could change as time goes on with private equity investment into our game. And it's something the uh, we always need to to balance out because internationals are the flagship of the of rugby around the world, and it's something we need to protect. The only thing I'd add to that is surely that's incentive for the clubs and the World Rugby Group to work better together to align the schedules because it's in everyone's interest to have the strongest side available at all times. And if no one's willing to bend on the schedule, then these conflicts are going to arise. Um, I, it'll be interesting. I guess the Players Association are probably right in the middle and they need to come out and say what their their group actually want. And some of the honest truth might be that some players are more interested in the money than the selections. I think it's the problem is at the moment it's going to have to be the Northern Hemisphere, I think, to compromise given the milder summer weather that they have up here. It's really difficult, I think, for Australian rugby, New Zealand rugby, South Africa to be playing through the summer months too much. Um, so, yeah, it's it's ultimately the power players up here are going to have to make some adjustments and I don't know if that's going to happen in the short term. I'm not sure they're willing to, to move their schedule amount around so dramatically, um, even, even though it would be for the good of the game. Toby, you were telling me about a documentary. Um, was it a documentary? It was just sort of a film and looking at some of the sort of corruption, uh, I dare say maybe not corruption, but power struggles, um, especially within some of those sort of, players that come from sort of poorer backgrounds and getting um, brought into the club systems of other sort of countries. Yeah, and this, this, this I would say it was the documentary. It's It's been put up on the, or a trailer has been put up on the Pacific Rugby Players Welfare YouTube page, which I just stumbled across from someone sharing it on Twitter, I think, and 
It's called Oceans Apart, Greed, Betrayal and Pacific Rugby. So as you say, it kind of delves into some of the, the murkier areas with player recruitment in the Pacific and and the power struggles with that and the fact that they're taking talent out of the islands, you know, when kids are there 13, 14, they're going off to play in New Zealand and, and being recruited at such early ages and the you know, the the problems associated with that. Um, I'm yet to watch it. It looks really interesting. So you can check the trailer out on YouTube. I think it's on Amazon Prime as well. So I'm not sure whether you have to pay for that. I think it may be something that you have to spend a few dollars on if you want to watch it on Amazon. But it's something that probably hasn't been addressed too much in the public eye ever, really. We've kind of known there's been issues with players going to New Zealand early, and that's why there's been some... um, I guess some issues that the island nations have had with New Zealand themselves and the All Blacks in terms of taking some of their talent early on into the super rugby systems, the Mitre 10 Cup system. And, yeah, it's it's basically stripping them of, of the talent that they have and, and making money off that talent and not necessarily reinvesting that money back into the communities that actually brought the talent in the first place. So that's been a problem for a long period of time in Europe, in in New Zealand, Australia, I'm sure, as well. And it's something that probably needs to be addressed because these these nations aren't getting the money that they need to grow. We're not actually including them in the major competitions year to year. Um, and so they're just not having an opportunity to get that exposure and encouraging players to actually play for their home nations. Often they... They will defer to the All Blacks or the Wallabies or France. We've seen some Fijian players is playing for France um, once they've got residency, and so it just it really does change the dynamic of and the strength of those Pacific Island teams. And mm. hopefully, with this adjustment in Super Rugby, we're going to see them get more exposure. Um, teams may be based in the islands, and that I think would be a positive step forward. But yeah, I encourage anyone to check that out and and make up their own minds on this this subject. But it's obviously something that I think we need to pay more attention to um, over the coming years. We'll put up a link to that on our social media as well, on Instagram at Running Rugby Podcast and on Twitter at Running Rugby Pod, if you guys do want to check it out a little bit as well. Uh, I think it is very important stuff when we say that rugby is a global game. It could be much more of a global game. So it needs to take into account... Uh, some of these extra sort of things that a lot of people probably don't think about us included most of the time. That about does it from us. We've got one more episode for the year for 2020, uh, that being the year. Um, And that'll come next week. We'll obviously look at the end of the Tri-Nations, have a brief glimpse into what is waiting for us in the new year. Um, and be able to crown a couple of champions of both the Autumn Nations Cup and of the Tri-Nations, of course. Thanks for tuning in again. Make sure that you are checking us out on those social media accounts if you do want any extra information and um, pick who you think should be winning some of these games on the weekend. Make sure you've subscribed to us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Go the Wallabies. One more game for 2020. Let's go Rennie, let's go Jock, let's go Hodge, keep on running. Run.
2015. Did I? The second Wallabies victory of 2015. Yeah, you might have. I don't think he said 2020. I'm not sure what he said. <laughs> Alex just can't get the... <laughs> is this 2015? Is this 2021? I don't know. It's almost 2021. But it's definitely not 2015. <laughs> it's been a long week. It's been a long five years. <laughs> Feels like five years. Since that world cup.